We have a great program for this month's OSHA 3030 in July of 2023, the Global Globally Harmonized Systems for Classification and Labeling of Chemicals, or GHS, was modified, promulgated uh, by the United Nations and implemented into the EU system through a CLP. And then this week, last just last week on Wednesday, October 11th, OSHA submitted to the OMB a proposed final rule for revising its own equivalent, the Hazard Communication Standard, or HAZCOM, a, a rulemaking that it had been promising for a couple of years now and has been highly uh, anticipated by the regulated stakeholder community. And so that was just last Wednesday, and here we are on this episode of the OSHA 3030. The dateline is October 18th, 2023, and we are here in Brussels, Belgium, to talk about the intersection between HASCOM and GHS. I'm Manish Rath, and welcome to the OSHA 3030. Well, welcome to the OSHA 3030. As I said, my name is Manish Rath, and I'm uh, an attorney here at the law firm Keller & Hackman. Uh, for the past almost 30 years, I've been engaged in management side occupational safety and health law and focused on issues just like this, the HASCOM standard. And I'm lucky because I'm joined today by my colleague here, Taylor Johnson, who's also from the Washington, D.C. office of Keller & Hackman. Taylor, welcome. Pleasure to be here as always, Manish. And we are here in Keller and Heckman's Brussels, Belgium office, an office that we've had for 30 years, and we're very fortunate today to be a part of our Brussels office and to be joined today by another one of our Keller and Heckman colleagues, Alish. Alish, why don't you introduce yourself? Uh, thank you, Manish, and uh, nice to meet you, everybody. It's the first time, indeed, that uh, maybe any Brussels attorney attends the OSHA 3030. That's right. So uh, my name is Aleš Bartl, resident uh, in uh, Brussels office, specialized in chemicals regulations, uh, EU chemicals regulations, and also product regulatory framework in the EU. Uh, we also you know, uh, represent on enforcement issues and also represent companies in uh, European courts. Aleš, we work on a number of matters together. So it's a great uh, privilege for me to be able to work with you. Aleš brings an enormous amount of value to our U.S. clients, to our European clients, to our multinational uh, global clients as well. And as you say, in the chemical space and, and many others, biocidal products, pesticides, fertilizers, food law, uh, just a tremendous value of uh, information and resources that Alex brings to our team. So thank you for all of the times that we've had a chance to work together. And thank you for having us uh, join you on the OSHA 3030. I should also add that there's a litigation value that we're able to add here in Brussels. Can you talk about that for a minute? Uh, well, uh, the only possibility how to challenge uh, regulations in the EU is to challenge it in the European Court. So, uh, and the European Court um, ruling are kind of shaping uh, and making European regulations more uh, proportionate and more fit to the purpose. Because without this, you know, uh, counterweight, 
the European regulations will be just too burdensome and disproportionate. So that's why it's important to go to the European court to litigate and to get uh, some better, better regulations. Thank you for explaining that, Alex. There's not a lot of people anywhere in the world who have that ability to be able to work through that system on behalf of multinational, large, and even smaller organizations uh, engaged in, in the chemical space or, or food space, et cetera. And so I think it's a real uh, privilege to be able to have you on the team and aid in uh, that kind of work with our clients. So, so thank you for explaining that. Well, Alex and Taylor, as you know, we've got a great topic today and uh, red hot in terms of his timeliness the uh, OSHA submission to OMB kicks us off. Taylor, why don't we start by talking about what we're going to talk about today? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so first, we'll go through the proposed updates uh, to OSHA's HASCOM standard. Like you said, a very recent development here in terms of sending the rule to OMB. Uh, we'll go through recent changes. Uh, so summer of this year, July 2023, uh, to the GHS uh, classification of labeling and chemicals. Alessia is going to talk about the revision to uh, the recent uh, recent revision to CLP regulation. And then, as always, we'll, we'll just, you know, wrap up. We'll actually talk throughout, I think, about what employers should do given these you know, new developments in this in this space. Yeah, I think that's a good, good roadmap for how we should tackle this. So why don't we start with our first question to, that I think that the members of the OSHA 3030 community might have, which is what is the status at OSHA right now? I know the since 2000, about 21, about mid-year 21, they've been talking about revising the HASCOM standard again. It feels like it was just yesterday that the agency promulgated the revision to HASCOM. That was has, what we refer to as HASCOM 2012. Right. And now they want to revise it yet again, putting the entirety of the chemical sector back into a somersault. So, Taylor? Right. I mean, that's a great summary. I mean, essentially, you know, in February 16th of 2021, OSHA published a notice of proposed rulemaking uh, to update the HASCOM standard. You know, a lot of activity immediately around that. A lot of comments were filed, and then nothing happened um, until literally until last week um, when OSHA sent the rule to OMB for review, uh, typically a 90-day process that OMB would get to review. I think the, the key question now, Manish, on, on everyone's minds is sort of, what 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 did they send us to OMB for review? We know it was the proposed rule, but we kind of you know didn't get a chance to see the actual content. Were any of the comments accepted? Is it a you know just uh, simply copying over the 2021 rule uh, that was proposed? And so that's the real question. Here. That's right. And I should point out, and those of you who are keen fans of the OSHA 3030 already picked up on this. We announced this topic oh three weeks ago, four weeks ago, maybe. right? Right. And uh, and just Wednesday, they submitted finally to the OMB. Yes. So you might be wondering what it is we know that everyone else doesn't know. <laughs> uh, Taylor, I think the next question would be, uh, what proposed changes do we anticipate, since no one is going to know during that 90-day review, what's in the OMB rule, what changes do we anticipate that we might see in the, the revised HASCOM? Let's start with uh, how they treat confidential information. Yeah, so um, I, I think in terms of trying to take the what we learned from reviewing the 2021 rule, um, you know, proposed rule, you know, there's four or five things we wanted to highlight that we think that we could see um, in this new rule that they sent to OMB. I think the first um, important thing is um, is hazard warnings. I, I think you know those specifically um, hazard warnings listed on the safety data sheet. Um, so when the rule came out, there was a lot of pushback about manufacturers need to list any hazard associated with a change in a chemical's physical form or resulting from a reaction with other chemicals downstream. Um, so kind of putting the burden on the manufacturer to not, to not only you know, classify the chemical as is, 
but kind of anticipate downstream um, what potential reactions could, could occur, what hazards could result from those reactions, and then needing to put those on the safety data sheet um, certainly caused a lot of uproar. There was a lot of comments focused on that. Yeah, the so, tension, Taylor, is, is always that this question that it has to be reasonably foreseeable or, you know, possible right. and pre right. predictably possible. And, and so they're really uh, putting the manufacturing community, importers and distributors in a a position where they have to be able to foresee all possible consequences. Right. But but really, manufacturers don't know what's going to happen to their chemical. They may send a, a chemical that has a, a very elastic kind of utility. It can go into multiple applications, uh, can only guess what its buyer is intending to mix with it or create a reaction right. to it with. And so that, that burden on the upstream manufacturer is a mission impossible to anticipate all the reactions that could happen one generation, two generations, or multiple generations downstream. That's exactly right. right. And, and that was the, you know, the gravamen of a lot of the comments that were submitted back in 2021. We were, we were amongst them on behalf of exactly. several of the sectors that we represent. It'd be interesting to see uh, if OSHA listened there and, you know, what this new rule that they sent to OMB looks like with respect to this particular issue. Okay. Now I guess we should turn to confidential business information, uh, what, what do you think employers should know? If you had to distill, I know that this past year they came out with a tabular range set. Right. Uh, and I think that that's a reasonable guess as to something that they might bake in since it was an interpretation between two rules right. that might make its way into this rule revision. Yeah. So I think how a lot of employers have been operating in this space for the past couple of years based on um, actually a 2017 letter of interpretation is that you can claim the range. You, you can um, put on your safety data sheet that you're going to treat the range of the concentration of a chemical as CBI, as confidential business information. I, I think the key now is exactly what you said, that table um, that we saw in the proposed rule in 2021. Um, I believe we actually have those ranges. Why don't we put that up? Yeah. Um, so, so these are the proposed ranges. And so as opposed to, you know, I've seen a lot of safety data sheets that will say, you know, uh, we're going to claim it as CVI. It's anywhere from 5 to 100% um, on right. the safety data sheet. I think the change here is that you would have to fit your range into one of these. Still claim it as CVI. Still put that asterisk there on the safety data sheet. Um, but that these were the proposed concentration ranges, at least back in 2021. Yeah, and I think that it's important for regulated stakeholders to to comment on what they think about this table. You will note that it has a sort of maybe maybe not quite logarithmic, but it's it's a ramping up range scale here, where the first few ranges are one percent up to four percent delta, and then by the time you get down to the bottom of the list, you're looking at thirty five, twenty percent type ranges. And so it gets much broader, tolerating, of course, the law of big numbers, perhaps. But I'm not really sure that you can call it confidential or that the confidentiality is protected sufficiently with a range of 05 to 1.5%. And so I really want yes. stakeholders who are affected by that yes. to, you know, to, because it's, it, it indicates at such small percentages that that's precisely the ingredient that has the most um, commercial value, efficacy. Uh, it's doing most of the work if yeah. it can do it at such small percentages. Yeah. And it's confidential. It's the it's the key to the whole uh, overall formula. Yeah. And so I really want stakeholders in, who are manufacturing or using or mixing with chemicals in those concentration ranges to participate in the rulemaking process. Yeah, no, completely agree. I mean, the, the gap between 0.5 and 1.5 and 80% to 100 is kind of stark. You'd almost think it'd be the reverse. And so, yeah. Yeah, I, it should be. Yeah. Right. Well, there's an argument to be made that it should be broader than this. It all ends at the scale, right? Right, exactly.
All right. Well, I guess that's uh, the confidential business information. I'm glad uh, we had that table up. Uh, why don't we talk about the exception for small containers? Sure. Um, so there's sort of two thresholds here to think about. Um, the first is 100 milliliters. Um, so for containers that have less than or equal to 100 milliliters, um, the, the, the rule proposes um, to, instead of having the full you know, label that we see you know, uh, called for by the HASCOM standard, um, you would just need to include the product identifier, uh, pictograms, a signal word, and then the chemical manufacturer's name and phone number. Um, so that sort of full list of hazard statements and precautionary statements would, would be omitted. And then for, um, for containers with a three milliliter capacity, if you can sort of demonstrate as a manufacturer that a label would interfere with the normal use of the container, which you wouldn't think would be difficult given the size of that container, then you essentially the rule would eliminate those labeling requirements um, and the container would just need to bear the product identifier. Um, so those are sort of the two thresholds. Yeah, this is a, a big problem in a huge range of product types that uh, involve hazardous chemicals communication, uh, including adhesives, et cetera, where the packaging would have to be four times bigger than necessary to contain the contents. In just for the purpose of fitting the label. Yeah. And uh, yeah. it's a, a wasteful, tedious, expensive process for employers. And so so now there's discussion of uh, the possibility of an exception to the entirety of the communication requirements for those small packages. And I think that makes sense. Maybe maybe there's other options for, for making sure that information gets communicated to the user. Yeah. Okay, so let's uh, move on to what's promulgating this change. It seems to me that in the time that HASCOM has been revised, maybe when you talk about a wall-to-wall -wall revision, maybe three times if, if you include this step, that GHS is now on its 10th revision right. as of this past summer. Right. So what are the op updates that OSHA is implementing that we think they're going to implement that are designed specifically for the purpose of mirroring or harmonizing with the globally harmonized system? Right. So, I mean... Back when the 2021 rule was proposed, OSHA was talking about revisions with GHS 8. Uh, now we're at GHS 10. Um, like I said, that happened in um, uh, July of 2023, just this summer. And so kind of, I think, potentially pushed OSHA forward a little bit in that area. And so the major changes that came uh, with the recent change uh, to GHS 10, there's a few. I, I think the, the big part um, that we wanted to talk about was a real push away from, um, from animal testing. Um, and so there's uh, there were a bunch of changes in GHS 10 sort of focused around that, um, that you could, with respect to testing required for respiratory or skin sensitization or serious eye damage or eye irritation, um, that existing human uh, testing data would actually be able to be used instead of animal testing. And this is where I wanted to actually, you know, ask Alessia a question here in terms of you know, I've seen in, in a few different regulatory regimes a, a big focus on you know, this move away from, from animal testing. I just wanted to see if you could talk about that a little bit. Yeah, so, uh, well, European regulations, be it CLP or a REACH regulation, which is the, the basic general uh, regulation that applies to chemicals, is built on the principle that animal testing is last resort. And both pieces of legislation actually promote number of um, non-animal test methods, in vitro testing, use of read across uh, or bridging principles for mixtures, uh, use of mathematical QSAR models. So, and uh, for example, for, for cosmetic products, there is a ban on testing on, on cosmetic ingredients. So we have to obtain results for your safety assessment uh, through alternative methods. So uh, this has been really enshrined um, deeply in, in, into the regulations. The problem is a bit 
that whenever uh, European Chemicals uh, European Chemicals Agency evaluates the, the non-animal data submitted by importers or manufacturers, uh, the agency actually very often disagrees with the use of non-animal testing methods and requires animal test instead. So I think uh, with the upcoming changes in, in the chemicals regulations that will require additional data to be generated, I think the European Union, the European Commission, European Chemicals Agency should change this approach and be more um, you know, uh, open to, to actually accept non-animal data. It's a catch-22 for the manufacturer because if the EU requires animal testing because the non-animal testing is, in their view, insufficient, once that animal testing has been conducted, commercially, that product is very difficult to move because the manufacturer of a mixture that incorporates that ingredient won't buy it if it's been subjected to animal testing. Is that right? Uh, Doesn't that present a, a catch-22 between keeping the EU happy and mm -hmm. making the product commercially viable for buyers that insist on animal-free testing? I think this this should be the case for cosmetic products that are right. under the under the consumer watch uh, radar but uh, not i think for other chemicals I think, I think it's not it's not really a public message that something has been tested on animals because literally everything every chemical is tested in principle on animals uh, okay. and um, the, the non animal testing is let's say an exception to the general requirement of having um, animal tests. So um, I don't think that this would create actually a problem. Excellent explanation. Thank you. So, so except for in the cosmetics industry. Yes. Right. But um, also, yeah. also for cosmetic industry, if a product is tested under reach on animals, it is accepted for marketing of cosmetic products. So uh, really limits. If your cosmetic ingredient is tested for other purposes, EU purposes than cosmetics regulation um, assessment, it's, it's allowed. And I want to be clear, when we talk about cosmetics, we're also talking about personal care products as well, a larger group. Is that right? Uh, well, cosmetic, uh, uh, the, the definition of cosmetic product in the EU is, is a bit narrower. It's really a product that is used directly on human body uh, with the intention to, to, to clean it or to restore right. its, its, its appearance. But I think I think it's 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 a bit less uh, it's a bit narrow, narrower than the, the the personal care product uh, as defined in the in, in the U.S. for example because I think there it may also include medical devices. So I, I think I was referring to things like shampoo and soap, etc. Yes, this this right. is our right. Okay, yeah. thank you. Taylor, <clears throat> I think that's a really important uh, development that we anticipate seeing in in the PASCOM model that is now going to potentially yeah. place manufacturers in the same kind of facing the same kind of challenges that are being faced in the EU. Yes, absolutely. And I think another thing um, that'll be interesting to see is, you know, Ocean talks in the preamble to the 2021 rule about, you know, kind of wanting to uh, get out of the situation of needing to constantly update the HASCOM standard to align with GHS. I mean, you see, even when we did it in 2020, when Ocean did it in 2021, it's already, you know, two revisions behind now. I don't think um, that they could do sort of an automatic, you know, anytime GHS gets updated, so 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 the HASCOM standard. But what the rule did talk about was um, sort of uh, maybe a year, every year they're going to check in, um, you know, kind of, it, it'll be interesting to see if there's sort of a plan to, to get these updates on a more regular basis, as opposed to having to go through this process. Right. Yeah. Well, let's wrap up one last question about the, let's go back two slides and uh, talk about when we think that the HASCOM 
standards, so the OSHA submission to the OMB is likely to materialize as an effective. Right. Um, so, so there were two triggers there. Um, the, the first was uh, a one-year phase-in period um, for just for regular substances. Um, so, so for simple substances, manufacturers and importers of those would have one year to to comply with the new rule, and then um, for manufacturers and importers of mixtures, they would have two years to sort of, I think, specifically with this, you know, kind of downstream uh, impact that we talked about needing to classify under those potential reactions. Um, they have they would have two years to comply. That's the problem we had in 2012, and it's not enough time. It's not even close to enough time. The problem is that it only assumes one generation of mixtures, but that's just not how the chemical industry works from beginning to end. So if you give enough time to the first manufacturer of the primary ingredient, enough time to modify all of their safety data sheets, their labels, you're looking at maybe some manufacturers having thousands and thousands of substances, right? And then those substances get bought by either distributors, mixers, wholesalers, uh, or by, by compounders, et cetera. And those folk have to all produce safety issues, they have to produce uh, um, labels, and it continues to go generationally into more uh, complex uh, final products. And to put the burden uh, of compliance on two years is simply not enough. It can be done if you're talking about one generation of mixtures. But right. if you take, for example, oh, maybe the tire manufacturing industry, or if you take, for example, compounded plastics that look like consumer products uh, then or or any number of um, hazardous chemicals that are specialty chemicals, then you're looking at five, six generations of products that go in and the end manufacturer has no time left to gather the data from their suppliers when the upstream supplier is going to take up all of the two years. So that's going to be a real challenge. I don't think OSHA is being particularly accommodating to that challenge. Completely agree. Uh, so the last thing that we wanted to do to wrap up today's program um, was to talk about the new CLP revision. Uh, this is um, the classification of, and labeling packaging of hazardous substances and mixtures, uh, CLP, the common yeah. acronym, unless a bit of an expert in this space. I just wanted to see if you could, you know, let employers know just, just um, you know, top, top level updates here. Be great. Right. So, uh, well, the most important message is that the amendment of CLP that was already published in April introduces three new hazard classes, uh, endocrine disruption, uh, uh, um, persistent uh, and bioaccumulative and toxic substances, and persistent and mobile and toxic substances. Uh, so uh, the, the main message here is that employers have to basically review the classification of substances and mixtures in their portfolio and assess if these substances or mixtures need to be classified in these three new hazard classes. And uh, this is a deviation from JHS. Of course, JHS does not have, does not include these three hazard classes. So this would be a new thing. Mm -hmm. um, of course, it, this obligation does not apply immediately. Uh, there are transition periods that depend on whether it's a mixture or it's, it's, it's a substance, whether it's a new, uh, newly placed on the market or already on the market, but the, the transition period is until May 2025 or May 2028, really depending on what is the, what is the case here. So there is some time. 
so maybe let's go quickly through the three new hazard classes. So as I said, the first one is endocrine disruption. Uh, so there'll be two categories uh, for known and suspected endocrine disruptors uh, and uh, for human health and or for environment. Uh, the assessment of uh, endocrine disruption properties uh, is to be based on weight of evidence assessment of all available information. So normally employers should, should, should gather available information and there is there are some databases of, of screening data uh, for example, at, at the European Chemicals Agency for Substances. So I think this all should be taken into consideration. Uh, and if the screening data show concern, then there may be even a necessity to, to uh, produce uh, animal testing to eradicate any, any uncertainties. So, um, yeah, so I think for industrialization, there is, there is really some, some, some work, work to be done. And uh, this needs to be read together with the upcoming revision of REACH regulation that is going to introduce a new data set, endocrine disruption. So every importer, every manufacturer in the EU will have to generate some kind of endocrine disruption uh, data that still uh, will, be, will be specified in, in, in the pipeline because we are not there yet in, in, in terms of reach. It should only be for new products? Uh, it's it's, it's applied to, to, to all products. So, so it, for existing products, we'll have to go back yes. to develop uh, that data. Yes, 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 yes. But uh, yes, so we are at the early stage of, of uh, amending the research, but everybody should know that this in the future, this is very likely to be a new data requirement. So the goal actually of the EU here is to push industry first to generate some endocrine disruption data, because currently there is a big data gap uh, and knowledge gap, and then push employers, importers, manufacturers, to classify the substance accordingly based on the data that they that they generated. So this will lead to more substances being identified as endocrine disruptors. So th th this is the plan. The second, second new category is uh, PBT and VPVB. That means persistent bioaccumulative and toxic and very persistent and very bioaccumulative substances. The hazard statement that will relate to this class is accumulate or strongly accumulates in the environment and living organism, including in humans. So this is bioaccumulative. It's bioaccumulative. And uh, so, so the, the criteria to identify these substances are the same as currently included in Annex 13 REACH, because already under REACH, there is an obligation to identify PBTs and VPVBs. Uh, so uh, the, 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 there is a two-tier testing first or two-tier assessment, first assessment of screening data, and then uh, based on the, the screen data result, you go to simulation testing. Uh, again, the problem with PBT and VPVB is that even though it's currently uh, an obligation under reach, very few substances are actually identified as PBT and VPVB. So again, uh, EU is hoping that since this is going to be a new hazard class, uh, more companies will be prompted to uh, to identify their substances as such. Are they given sufficient clarity to be able to make that determination? Uh, is it aware the threshold is before they would have to classify something as PBT? Yes, this is this is a good question. Uh, for for PBTs, there is there is uh, enough guidance documents because it is an existing reach obligation. So really, the criteria are very clear. Criteria are very clear. For endocrine disruption, this is um, less clear. There is uh, an outdated guidance 
uh, that that is not applied anymore. And uh, the EU is working on a new guidance document to be published by 2024. Uh, so I think that everybody is checking what data is there, but waiting really for for a uh, for a final decision whether to classify or not for the new guidance document. So for endocrine disruption, uh, the criteria are not are not very clear, and the, 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 the how to how to determine is not very clear either. So there should be a new guidance document uh, by 2024. And is that open to comment? Uh, no. Guidance documents are are um, maybe maybe there is there are, there are some targeted stakeholders consultations, but there are no there are no uh, you know uh, open public document. public consultations. Okay. And so the, the third class. The third one is also new. Um, it's actually only uh, a decade ago that this category of persistent mobile toxic and very persistent and very mobile has been identified as a category of substances of very high concern under reach. Uh, and already, um, uh, very very few substances have been included in in the in the candidate list. So the M element is is the mobility. Uh, so it's 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 um, it's a substance that that uh, basically travels long distances, mainly in in the ocean area, and can be found in remote areas, you know, in in Antarctic and 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 so on. And the it is based on the on the logarithm of the water to organic carbon partition coefficient, log KOC, uh, which is obviously very technical. But uh, uh, typically, substances do not do not have this this value established. So I think uh, some kind of log KOC data will need to be established for for every every substance uh, that is that is considered to be persistent and when does a manufacturer when is a manufacturer able to say we don't need to develop the lock koc data because it's obvious or apparent that it doesn't have that high mobility uh if it's if well if it's not persistent if it's not persistent then you don't have the p element so we don't need to bother so that's a, that's a easy exit if yeah. there's yeah. a lack of persistence in, right. in the right. nature of the material. Yeah. But as to the mobility, how does I suppose something is persistent, but the question of mobility is open? Does an employer, does a manufacturer get to rely on the obviousness, the patency of the lack of mobility of a material as a defense for not registering? Yes. Yes. Okay. Yes. But I, I, in my understanding, this, this is this is an, uh, rather an objective criteria on this this lock lock KOC. So mm -hmm. I think, in my layman view, it, it should be it should be rather straightforward to uh, test. But um, of course, um, there's always uh, always complications. So yeah, so the takeaway messages uh, is that really this this requires a reassessment of substances in 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 portfolio, and. Another takeaway message is that if a substance is ultimately classified in one of these three criteria, this will very likely have a further impact because th these three categories are really a priority criteria for EU for further scrutiny, for further SVHC listing, for further uh, you know, uh, generic restrictions, at least for industrial and professional uses. So uh, for, for many substances, especially those uh, that, that are used in consumer products, uh, classification in these three categories may mean actually a showstopper in, in, in the EU. Uh, next question, how do these changes 
impacts international employers and chemical manufacturers. I think we've talked about some of that, but yeah, my, I was actually wondering, you know, if, if you're in this space as an international chemical manufacturer, are you considering, I mean, would you advise at this point to consider a, a separate label for a non-EU jurisdiction? I mean, is that where we're headed here with all these changes? No. Or? Yes, I, I think that that, that that would be my advice. Okay. Uh, because if, for example, if, uh, if a substance is only classified as PBT or as endocrine disruptor in the EU, uh, then it would be confusing, probably, uh, and not not very good for 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 business to have such strong statements right. on the label next to a label, for example, for the US saying that that there are no hazards. Uh, but of course, uh, the data that will be generated, for example, on endocrine disruption, may actually entail classification as a reprotox, also, or as a carcinogen or mutagen. Uh, because these endpoints are, you know, quite quite similar, or maybe similar to each other. So, uh, I think this may also influence uh, other jurisdictions that do not have these these three categories. Uh, but um, uh, another thing that that is also in the pipeline for the CLP is that uh, uh, CLP, uh, as to be a bit on on the good side for industry, wants to uh, make the use of multilingual fold out labels easier. Because currently uh, you, you are not allowed to uh, use fold-out label on your product with all EU languages, right. just because uh, you want to put all the languages and uh, you would not have space on, on the package, so use fold-out labels. So this, this is currently not allowed. So uh, there may be some 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 uh, flexibility, uh, but this is again in the pipeline. Uh, so we we don't know how it's going to end. So that, that would be good because this would really allow. Um, uh, marketing um, in the EU, uh, in all countries, and maybe also outside of the EU, and really have the all languages in. Before. Yeah, I can see that. Alesh, the the model for wholesalers and distributors is such that I I think that the multilingual fold out label makes certainly a case for being able to fluidly move that market and that product into multiple markets. Whereas Taylor, I don't know if separate labels uh, gets you there because the manufacturer. Once selling to the wholesaler or the distributor doesn't know yeah. where it's going to get, which market it's going to get sold into. Yeah. And so it's very difficult to create two labels and say, now this batch has to go into, let's say, the U.S. market. Right. And this batch right. has to stay in a particular country within the EU, for example. Uh, so I think that and, and it, it obligates that product into those markets. Whereas I think distributors, wholesalers, they want the flexibility to move inventory around to meet um, you know, changes in demand. And so, so I think the, the separate labels is an obvious alternative, but it creates as many problems as it solves. And I, I think that's sure. going to be problematic. I hope that this is being discussed by stakeholders. Absolutely. That's a great point. Taylor? Yeah, um, I, I think that that's it. Um, that was a fantastic program today. Alesh, thank you so much. Really, thank you for really appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's a great opportunity to be able to include Alesh onto the show and introduce uh, all the incredible things that he's capable of to our U.S. Uh, listeners on the Usher 3030, as well as our multinational clients who, yeah. who work with us in the U.S., you and I. Uh, Taylor, it's always a privilege working with you on the cases that we work on in front of OSHA and in front of the state plan states as well. We've been in front of just about every state yes. over the years, and we've participated in every major OSHA rulemaking for the almost 30 years I've been doing this. Uh, Alex, it's always been a privilege of mine to be able to work with you and our clients, with our uh, shared clients that are here in Europe, in the United States, multinationals, et cetera. 
Uh, and so thank you again for coming on the show. Always happy to help. Thank you. And Taylor, thank you. Yeah. And on behalf of everyone on uh, the team at Cowan Heckman who helped put this show on, well, thank you to, the, to our team. Uh, and thank you to Michelle here in our Brussels office for helping put this show together. Uh, and to all of you in the uh, OSHA 3030 community, thank you as well. We look forward to seeing you again. Uh, I think our next episode is on the next slide. Our next show, the OSHA 3030, will come on again on November 15th at 1 p.m. Eastern. Uh, always at 1 p.m. Eastern, uh, always on a Wednesday, and the next one will be November 15th. Don't forget our sister shows, uh, the Reach 3030. Lush, are you part of that program? Yes, yes. And it's a great program, and thank you for being a part of it. Uh, and the Tosca 3030, uh, both of them are on December 6th at 10 a.m. and 1 p.m. respectively. Uh, so if you are with an organization that is responsible for compliance with REACH or with TASCA, make sure that you spread the good word about our sister programs, the REACH 3030 and the TASCA 3030 to your colleagues up and down the hallway who are responsible for compliance with that, uh, with those uh, statutes, with those regulatory schemes. The only other thing I'd say is the same thing I say every time and I've been doing for 10 years now. We celebrated our 10th anniversary of the show right. in, uh, I've lost track August, so we're now- Couple months ago. Yeah, yeah about 100, episode yeah. 123 now, never missed a single episode. Uh, so, so for those of you who've been with us that long, you'll know what I'm about to say next. The next time you get an invitation to the OSHA 3030, please, the only registration fee we ask of you is to send that invitation on to at least three other people within your organization and at other organizations that are responsible for compliance with the Occupational Safety and Health Act. And if you've already done so, thank you. We're very grateful. It's what's keeping the program alive. But please, next time you get an invitation, try and find three more people to forward the invitation onto so that we can keep growing the OSHA 3030 community. Hopefully, we'll be together for another 10 years. We look forward to seeing you next month. And until then, stay safe. <laughs>